Well, there you have another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. Today's guest I met two years ago at the Military Influencer Conference in Dallas, Texas. I saw him again last year in Orlando uh, at the same conference. His name is Mr. Andrew Nelson. He was a member of the 82nd Airborne, and he's got an amazing, um, some amazing wisdom on transition, doing some great things in law now since he got out. I appreciate you listening to Straight Outta Combat Radio. I think you're going to enjoy this interview. Thank you. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night. You were born to fight. You got my name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all burn it down. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is Mr. Andrew Nelson, United States Army veteran, former paratrooper with the 82nd Airborne. Uh, I met Andrew, gosh, two years ago. My gosh, time flies. Two years ago <laughs> at the Military Influencer Conference in Dallas. Uh, we had an opportunity to spend a couple of days out there. And we had a really great time. And, and then very briefly last year, uh, we saw each other in Orlando at the, at the Influencer Conference there. Andrew is a standout guy. He's got a heck of a legal resume, not an illegal one, a legal one. We're going to talk about that. You know, he is a uh, he did get his um, law degree from the University of the Pacific, the McGeorge School of Law. But he hails uh, from uh, Washington, just south of Seattle. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, his upbringing and how he got to the 82nd Airborne. But then really what he's done since his time with the, you know, with the military and, and his message to our listeners. Um, anyhow, very thrilled and humbled and happy to finally get Andrew Nelson here on the show. Welcome to Straight Out of Combat Radio. John, thanks a ton. Really appreciate you having me on here. Well, we're glad to have you, man. You know, I, I just, you're one of the guys I've been wanting to get for a while. You know, you're, you're, you're busy. You're always on the move. And as I guess most paratroopers are, you guys are always, <laughs> always running around, but, uh, you know, let's just let's, let's dig right in. Tell us about your childhood, high school, you know, and what your path was like to to the 82nd Airborne. Yeah, sure. You know, I I have a story I guess that I assume a lot of other folks have. You know, my my parents are still around. I'm, you know, I'm 46 now. My parents live in in the house I grew up in uh in Renton, Washington, which is a, a suburb uh of Seattle. Um, it's kind of a small manufacturing town, Boeing centric, and I think the first B seventeen kind of rolled off the uh, uh, flight line at that particular factory way back wow. when. And so, uh, you know, one sister, um, you know, went to the same high school my dad did. <laughs> you know, if you can believe that, uh, even had one of his uh, teacher that my dad had. You know, thirty years prior, believe it or not, oddly wow, enough, man. It's pretty crazy. Um, yeah, so you know, I, I, you know, my early childhood was really kind of just centered around this greater Seattle area. Um, you know, I was one of those kids that didn't do a lot of vacations or vacation. My vacation got to be going to Eastern Washington to go hang out with the grandparents in the Tri Cities down there. So I got, I, I got to yeah. ask you though, man, did you get involved in the grunge scene? Well, funny enough, that scene kind of 
uh, came on right when I got in the army. So oh, I got it. I, I experienced it, but not in Seattle. I experienced it in North Carolina. <laughs> um, so I remember this day, as a matter of fact, my, I kind of came back, I think after basic training and my sister, she's a couple years younger than me, had Nirvana's album. So she kind of turned me on to that. And then I became this, uh, you know, miniature or minor hero when I came back to North Carolina. I said, hey, guys, have you heard this new album yet, this new band? <laughs> that's <laughs> So I got to introduce Nirvana, you know, to all the guys, you know, so that was, that was uh, so that's how I experienced it. But no, I just wasn't in directly in the scene geographically. Roger that. I got that. So, <laughs> so did you have any military in your background? Yeah. You know, it, I hate to say that I came from a military family because I, I, I wouldn't describe it as that. My dad, you know, had one tour in the Air Force, um, you know, spent four years. He was a, he was a missile man, believe it or not. So he spent, time down in the in the silos down in new mexico i believe uh his brother you know was a in the army he was a paratrooper with the 101st when they were still an airborne division you know so the two guys i guess right above me had army experience before that you know not much at all um and then you know now all of us i guess the kids in my generation my cousins and second cousins all of us have been in one of the services uh, most of us are kind of just one term and done. Few have stayed in for a few or more. I think I think I have one second cousin who's still in, probably looking toward retirement. So, in that sense, you know, uh, a military family, but not like others. That's for sure. That's pretty cool, you know. But but you know, but but there always has been some kind of lineage. You know, I've interviewed very few people that have had not, you know, that haven't had anybody in their family, you know, that have served the country. Was there, mm-hmm. can you, you know, thinking about before we get to the path to the, uh, to the 82nd, you know, can you think of any, you know, who was your hero? Who were your mentors growing up? And, and, and did you have that great love of country? Yeah, I certainly did. You know, I, mentors, that's, that's always been a tough one to answer. I mean, I, you know, my dad and I were pretty tight and not tight at the same time. You know, we, we would, you know, it's not as if my dad hung around and did homework with me and that sort of thing. I was kind of on my own when it came to that. And I was, I guess I was fine with it, but you know, he's the guy I would hang out in the shed with while he, uh, you know, sharpened his, uh, chainsaw blade and stuff like that. You know, I have no idea. I'm just watching, you know, I mean, like any other kid and sorting nuts and bowls out in coffee cans and things like that. And, you know, and just learning what it's like to kind of just be outside and just the simple things. Now I think about it, you know, talking to him about his childhood. For some odd reason, for years and years, uh, you know, when you're young and I didn't have a concept of the passage of time, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I my dad it. at some point must have told me that he, you know, given our last name being Nelson, he kind of joked around and told me that he was once in his youth of Viking. And of course, I believed it, right? Because I, <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea that it had to be, uh, that would have been a long, long time ago. You know, I, I talked to him, and my grandpa lived, his dad just lived three houses down, so I spent a lot of time with him as a kid, and uh, we lived on a, a riverfront property, so, it, you know, I'd learned to fish and things like that from my gramps um, uh, growing up. So, I, you know, I'd kind of get stories about life from them, and certainly from a, a young, young age. Uh, my dad worked in construction, um, so he'd be the guy that'd get up at four in the morning and drive pretty far off for some project. So he'd go to bed at eight o'clock. So my kind of nightly routine as a little kid was to jump in bed with dad while he kind of watched a little bit of TV to wipe out. It'd always be old, you know, old World War II flicks and things like that. So right. you know, that's kind of, I, I just soaked that stuff up. Um, you know, and he'd wipe out and then I'd just take off and go to bed. But, uh, so, you know, I, it was very kind of, uh, you know, seeing something military centric was was a regular part of the week, I guess, growing up, and I always, you know, I always had me thinking about what I was going to do when I got uh, to be that age. That's pretty cool. So, so did you go directly into the service after high school, or did what did you do? 
I did. Um, you know, growing up, I, I think I probably rotated, you know, what my favorite service was of the week or the month or something like that, you know. <laughs> wanted to be in the Navy at one point, you know, because of Top Gun, and then I wanted to be in the Marines at one point because of, you know, you name it, Full Metal Jacket or something. Uh, you know, rotated in the Army. Then, uh, unfortunately, Iron Eagle didn't inspire me to go in the Air Force or anything like that, <laughs> but I'm sure I wanted to be in the Air Force at some point, um, if, if I was just flying. I was in the... Uh, I was in the Civil Air Patrol for a while, too, as a kid, so I was definitely thinking the aviation route at one point. Um, but, you know, when it came down to it, uh, funny enough, I mean, this isn't a great story, but I think, you know, the Army recruiter is the one that called first, you know? And so, you know, they called first, and they kind of did the, hey, what, you know, there's a junior in high school. What are you doing for college? You know, and I kind of just shrugged my shoulders. I don't know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, hey, Mom, you know, college is next, I think, and uh, that's part of the plan, right? Uh, and my, neither of my parents went to college. You know, my parents, so my parents didn't have any experience with that either, and so they kind of shrugged their shoulders too, and I thought, oh, geez, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? Um, and on top of that, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I shouldn't say exactly. I wasn't remotely sure what I wanted to do. So, you know, I, so I signed up in the delayed entry program as a, you know, right at the end of my junior year, and that was in 1990, so right before, you know, August when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Um, so I was, you know, signed up for the Army, but then I got to sit around for a, a year and, you know, hang out with the recruiters and, you know, do PT with them, you know, once every couple of weeks and stuff like that and kind of watch what's going on. And then graduated high school and I was in Fort Benning, Georgia, I want to say 10 days later, something like that, June 2000 or June 1991. What was that like? <laughs> right from high I'll tell school. Tell you what, it yeah. was hot. Yeah. So I remember, I remember that day I, you know, I left Seattle, it must've been something like 6.30 AM and it was June. So you can get nice days, but this had to happen to be one of those really colder, rainy days in June. And I remember flying all the way across to Tennessee, switching to some kind of, you know, short range aircraft there and then flying through thunderstorms and then getting into, you know, we're, the Columbus airport, I guess, right outside of Fort Benning there, it must've been 10 or 11 PM. And I remember, and them opening the door, and I remember this this hot air just coming in, and you could you could like feel it, like you know, just going around your body, and had a different smell and everything. I was like, I knew I was in a different place, you know. Right. And then they, I remember them trucking us in and feeding us hamburgers or something at midnight or something like that. I said, man, this is okay. I'm in a different place now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and it is humid, you know. And if you're getting it bending, yeah, in June, are you kidding me? That's like that place is a scorcher. Yeah, people don't realize that there's not a lot of circulation of the air up there either. <laughs> no, so yeah, it was it was warm, that's for sure. And yeah. So that's United States Army Infantry School. So you were eleven Bravo. I was. I, I didn't know it at the time uh, when I signed up. You know, I, I got an airborne contract, um, but they so I signed up as eleven X, uh, which was just on assigned infantry. So didn't know exactly what kind of an instrument it was going to be. And I, I don't remember. I suppose once we got down with basic, they kind of split us all up, and we were all, you know, in that company, we were all either eleven Bravos um, or eleven Charlies. Um, back then, there were also eleven hotels and there were eleven mics, but I don't think we had any of those in our company, as I recall. So, what was that training like for you? What you know, were you psyched for? You know, you you talked about doing PT before you got there. You know, yeah. Yeah, I you know, look, growing up, I would never, de- I would have never described myself as an athlete. <laughs> so, you know, I managed, I got by. Did I ace the PT test? Nah. Did I come in at the bottom? Nah. No. Did I did I get through it comfortably? Yeah, pretty comfortably. So, yeah. w- was there anything easy about basic training? 
uh, I'd like to say I look back on it and say, yeah, I can get through that. But heck, man, you know, you don't know what the next day is going to hold for you. So in real time, I'm sitting there going, yeah, this is quite a challenge, you know. And then, you know, it's not just eight weeks. If it's eight weeks and then, hey, guess what? You go out for three days on leave and come back and uh, – or I guess your three-day pass, rather, and uh, another six weeks of the same set of drill sergeants. <laughs> so – um, and that's, you know, we're talking June, July, August. It was a, uh, it was a good time. Good, good rough time there in, uh, in Fort Benning. That was kind of a, wasn't that kind of a wake up call though? You go to basic training and then you do, you get a few days off and then you're right back in the mix with that advanced training. And it's like, holy cow, I thought I'd passed something and I'm going to get out of this. And then you're right back in it again. It's kind right of, back in it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a blur at this point. I mean, I, you know, I got my little yearbook or whatever from the time, which is mostly stock photos and <laughs> chuck in a couple of like photos that they take along the way. Um, but it's funny. I remember, I, you know, I was looking at not even a month or two ago, I opened up a footlocker and found it and I thought, God, I, I remember, I forget doing that. I, yeah, we did do mines that day. And then we did it. Yeah. We did it with the grenades and we did X, Y, and Z. I mean, just forgot a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, when you're there in basic at AIT, you're just trying to get through and make it to the next day, right? And then not get recycled. <laughs> exactly. You know, and that's the last thing you want. I, I remember one time I fell out on her. I didn't fall out. I stopped to tie my boot lace. And, uh-huh. then, and you know if you drop out, it takes a little bit more to get back. And I was just about back to the formation. And they threw me in the back of a, of a deuce and a half. And I never did that again. If my boot ever came unlaced, I just went with it. You know, it was not fun what they made us do. So is there anything, you know, so tell, you know, is there anything that stands out, you know, from your basic training or your advanced training that you went, you know, where you think about whole, you know, where something just transcended and you go, you know, I'm really, this is really kind of cool or this is not cool. Anything that stands out? Well, uh, hmm. I remember, you know, I was really in awe of the whole thing. I mean, you know, I, I lived, I don't want to say I lived a sheltered life, but in a way I did. Like I told you earlier, I didn't, you know, really get out of Washington much, didn't really see even this, a lot of the state. And I didn't even think I even saw the ocean, if you can believe that. You know, living in a coastal state, I didn't see the, I made a sudden Puget Sound in Seattle, but I didn't see the actual coast until I was probably 17, you know. So I was just in awe of the whole thing about how big of a, you know, I was just part of this, much bigger kind of operation that, you know, just uh, extended everywhere, you know, and I didn't know where the boundaries and the ends of it were, but I was just part of this big machine. Um, and so I was, you know, really, uh, like I said, I was in awe of the whole thing and, you know, just, you know, really dug being a part of this thing. You know, I didn't, I, I you know, I really expected, well, I didn't have a lot of expectations, but I had some expectations that I was going to have some, some big adventures like I've never seen, you know, which was true. I had, you know, so, so I was excited What was and happy to be done with it. <laughs> yeah. What was airborne school like? Uh, airborne school was, a, it was a bit of a blur. And, and the funny thing is, you know, if, if you got a couple seconds here on this, you know, once I finished AIT, that was a big drawdown, right? This is post Gulf War. So they started to draw down the army quite a bit and basic training, you know, they have these starships, they used to call them. Um, at Fort Benning, and they started to shut down a few of the base training units, and ours was one of them. It was the last rotation. So we finished AIT, graduate, and I think the great majority of our company um, were National Guardsmen or reservists. So they all took off to go back to wherever state they were from. And the remainder of us, and I'm guessing it was maybe 15, 20 of us, I don't recall, get ready to go to airborne school because we're all regular army. Um, but 
uh, you know, and there's a, there's a rotation that starts every week because I think they had, I think they always had a, every three weeks they always had, or every week they had a new rotation. They had um, three companies, I think. So we're getting ready to go. Figured, okay, we're going to go into the next rotation, and, and somebody comes out and says, hey, um, you know, a bunch of West Point cadets are coming down. They're getting these slots, so you guys have to wait for the next rotation. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. but while you're waiting, we have to shut down this uh, this whole battalion. So start cleaning, <laughs> you know. So we're there for another two or three weeks, just 20 of us getting babysat by some like reserve drill sergeants and just cleaning up the kitchen and, you know, mess all of just kit, just clean it. So that was my first taste of, well, of real, real deep cleaning. Of course, I've been cleaning the whole time you're in basic and AIT as well, but this is real cleaning. And so I was happy to get through that. Maybe that was the toughest part and I didn't, don't even remember it. But, you know, once we got to airborne school three weeks later, that was a blast. I mean, all of a sudden we kind of felt like we were actually in the army, right? You know, it's not, basic it's not ait we're mixing it with other people of all you know all kinds of actually all services are there um we have people from different countries you know in the class even and uh you know you're talking to sergeants all of a sudden you're talking to them kind of regularly like hey sergeant you know from where are you from what's going on why are you here in airborne school not everything's drill sergeant you know of course it takes about three weeks still to stop saying drill sergeant <laughs> right. putting drill in front of every 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 time but um, yeah, I loved it. I mean, uh, airborne school is quick. I mean, three weeks goes really fast, of course. And then that last week, that jump week, you know, where they say you're going to do five jumps in five days, it ends up being one jump, and then the rest kind of come in the next couple of days, and you get done with it. But that was a blast. I mean, I was really thrilled I did it. I was one of those dorks who actually literally, literally screamed airborne when I jumped out the first time. <laughs> and actually, the chute opened. Uh, then I get, karma got me because I want to hit the ground. I landed right in a, a pile of uh, or a fire ant hill, and so <laughs> so I had some some karma man. after that one. They were going to teach so. this paratrooper. That's exactly what they were thinking. But uh, yeah, so it's okay. So you did anybody come to your graduation? Who can, did your parents come? You know, for airborne school, yeah, my mama came down. She flew down, believe it or not, with my sister, and and my mom pinned on my wings and. Uh, all that, and then we drove to Atlanta, and and then I think I from there I had leave, and I flew back with my mom to uh, Seattle for a week or two before I, you know, then headed out to Fort Bragg to for my duty station. What was that like? So then, well, that must have been. How'd you feel? Oh boy, we're at what point here? Right when your mom pinned your wings on, how'd you feel? That was great. I mean, I was, it was I was, I knew I was kind of, you know, I've been in this kind of different environment for so long, and. And, you know, one thing I didn't mention, and I don't tell many people this, but I'll tell you my first, after I got to, you know, Bay, you got to the entrance, uh, kind of the, re- the receiving spot there at uh, Fort Benning. Right. A couple days later, after, you know, they take your clothes, they take all your personal items, they take your hair. I had culture shock, you know. I was sitting there, I remember one time, just kind of shaking a little bit, you know, like, you know, where am I kind of thing, you know. Um, you know, that, that quickly passed, but, you know, here I was, then my, you know, I see my mom and, and, you know, I know I'm going back home for at least for a little while, but, you know, you, you feel accomplished, right? And you're like, okay, I'm, I got past this, you know, and I'm going to go to the, my, you know, regular duty station, but I get to go home and be, you know, where I was, you know, four months ago uh, for a little while and spend time with the family again. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know what? Great what, feeling, but you know it's limited. You know, it's limited at the same time. You know, it's not going to last very long. <laughs> that's true. You know, you know, one thing that you mentioned that was kind of interesting you mentioned, you know, the National Guard and the Army Reservists. And I remember my own personal story, like when, when we when we got ready to go, when AIT was done and we were getting our orders, it, it did. It kind of freaked me out. You know, 75% of our platoon, or actually our company, 
we're all going back home. And I'm like, man, I could have signed up to go back home. <laughs> it's kind of right. Yeah. You know, it was kind of interesting. But, you know, I'm not saying that it didn't want that. I didn't want to stay. But that's funny when you mentioned that, because it was like a, sh- a shock to me. I, I thought everybody was going somewhere like I was. You know, it was weird. Yeah, I didn't think we were going to be kind of in the minority, so to speak. You know, I thought there'd be maybe some reservists and National Guardsmen. I didn't really, I, it was just kind of peculiar to me that very few of us were regular Army. Yeah, it was like everybody was leaving, man. It was kind of crazy. But So tell us about – so you spent your your whole time at Bragg, or did you guys get moved around, or how would that go down? No, you know, I, I spent my whole time at Bragg. Certainly, you know, did some missions and that sort of thing in different places uh, across the U.S. And, and went down to Panama for a bit. But, I, you know, I was stationed at Bragg the whole time. Tell us about the 82nd Airborne. Uh, well, I, okay, I can tell you about the yeah the early '90s 82nd Airborne. How about that? Okay, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I don't know how big Fort Bragg is these days. I know it was still it was one of the bigger uh, bases back then. I I think Fort Hood might have been bigger. I'm not sure, um, but you know, good place, big place. Um, and I tell you what, it was you know I think there were forty thousand soldiers at the time on Fort Bragg, uh, you know, only 15,000 roughly, you know, were 82nd. So there was a lot of soldiers on that base for sure. But, you know, it's a, I have, I don't have any other, you know, units to really compare it to um, since I didn't serve in any others, but, you know, we were a, a you know, a driven set of knuckleheads, <laughs> as I say, you know, uh, of course, three years, you know, like a lot of other young guys, I suppose. But I was proud to serve in that unit. You know, we certainly, you know, we don't really have anybody to kind of like show off to other than ourselves. So you don't really get any satisfaction from that. But, you know, we were a driven unit that, uh, you know, we least like to think that we were, um, you know, uh, cutting edge. Um, and did a lot of really cool stuff, you know, um, uh, when I was in that unit. You know, stuff that I wanted to do. And one thing I didn't mention earlier, you know, I, when I said you know that i joined the army because they gave me a call you know kind of first is, is kind of how it went down uh there was a whole process of what do you want to do as well right you know what do you want to do when you're in the army because you know, i scored well on the asvab and i pretty much had my choice of whatever i wanted to do but i remember telling the recruiter specifically i said look I, i'm gonna be in here i'm only gonna i'm only gonna be here for three years so if i'm gonna be in the army uh, this whole like interpreter thing sounds really cool and i'd love to go to language school but i want to do you know, finger quotes, army stuff. I want to blow stuff up. I want to jump out of planes, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I signed up to do. That's why I went, you know, 11 series. And so for Bragg, I got to do exactly that. Uh, jump, do missions, do live fires, you know, fire AT4s, all that stuff, loud stuff. And luckily I wore my earplugs, I think, most of the time. So I think I came out okay. Was there any one instance uh, or is there anything that you went through in your training or your or your – permanent duty station that stands out in your mind, you know, just, you know, this is kind of, um, you know, that made you feel more patriotic or just, you know, made you really feel like you were doing something fantastic or a lesson that you may have seen, you know, maybe something, something that you saw, uh, that goes, Holy cow, that, that really made an impact on me. Yeah. Well, tell you what, you know, oddly enough, um, you know, you, I'm sure it's the same with any unit. You're going to go through rotation, rotations, you know, either training or you're kind of on ready status or you might be doing kind of menial things like, you know, cutting grass and stuff like that. So I remember, you know, one time we had, uh, one or two times we had, um, I don't know if we called it burial duty or funeral duty or whatever. So, uh, you know, here we are, you know, 
our job is infantry, so we're out in the field a lot doing this and that. And next thing you know, it's like, well, you, okay, now you guys, for the next six weeks, you guys are going to learn how to do 21-gun salute. You're going to learn how to carry caskets. And if anybody uh, just so happens to die in the state of North Carolina or whatever, and they request a military funeral, you guys are going to be the ones doing it. Okay. <laughs> you know, and sure enough, we did two or three of them during our rotation, you know, and, you know, that's the chance for us to kind of like get out and, you know, in, in the field of a different nature, you know, which is kind of in the, you know, I don't, I don't remember where we went in North Carolina, but went someplace in some, you know, town that's not a military town and, and put on a, you know, a, a good, uh, ceremony for somebody else that served and that was a great feeling you know it, that was really wonderful that's pretty cool so okay so you spent your entire time at bragg were you ever what is what do you know about the 502nd parachute regiment the 502nd yeah gosh the 502nd those guys are i don't know but i'm guessing that those guys those guys are part of the 101st am i wrong about that i don't know i thought you know i thought when we were in dallas i thought we had talked about the 502nd but i but i I'm not, you know, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm not an airborne guy. You know, I was a, I'm a 54. Well, yeah, I'm a chemical guy, but uh, yeah. I just, uh, you know, I always forget. They, uh, you know, they have, well, because, so in the 82nd, the, you know, we had, we had three brigades. So we had the, we had the 504 and the 505 is what I was in. And then we had the 325. And the 325 was a legacy kind of uh, uh, regiment from World War One when it was the 82nd Infantry Division. Right. And then I know the five hundred first. I believe, of course, has the five hundred six, right? I mean, of course, Brandon Brothers and all that, right? Right. Easy Company, first five, the five hundred six, and I think they have another one of the, not the three two five. Maybe they have the three two four, three two six. I'm not sure exactly. And then I thought they had another. I thought they may have the five hundred two. And then there's the 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 training battalion, the training regiment, rather. Down at Fort Benning was the 507th, if I recall. So I don't know where the heck they have the others scattered. So 50, the 502, I'm not sure. Maybe if someone, there's a 101st person listening, maybe they'll know. Yeah, we, we need to figure, I gotta need to figure that out. But so, so you did all these missions, you served your country, you were airborne soldier, and then you transitioned out. Did you have any idea what you were going to do when you got out? Only in the general sense, which is, I knew what I was doing before I went in the army. So I had a goal, you know, part of the goal was, you know, they sold me with the college fund, right? You know, Hey, there's the GI bill plus, you know, since you're uh, in a particular kind of MOS, you can get the army college fund too. I'm like, Oh really? Wow. Okay. So serve three years. You can do two, three, four. If you do three years, you get 24,500, you know, with the GI bill included. Like, wow. Okay. That sounds great. So I'm going to college when I get done, likely going to university of Washington, and that's kind of a legacy from my from the family. My dad did not go to college, but my, his, his dad did, and then my uncle went there as well. So I was destined to go there. So I kind of knew generally what I was doing, but I didn't know what I was going to study. I got you know I kind of developed my interests a bit in the army, and you know, I kind of realized, hey, the things that really draw me are you know history. I read history books, and I like you know I like I don't like politics, but political science interests me, and these are things that draw me. So those are things I might study. And so I you know I get out and and you know. I, that's my goal. I mean, I, it's a it's a generalized goal. Didn't know what I was going to do, but that was the goal. I knew I had, you know, a next phase. And the next phase was to get to college, figure what I'm going to do in college, but get through it. Um, and so that was the plan. So, I, you know, after I ETS'd in September of 94, I drove across country, and I think I was starting school, and it must have been within a week or something like that. And I was off to the races, you know, and <laughs> just, taking, just taking kind of generalized courses and figuring out what I liked, figuring out what drew me, and Thought I was going to be a history professor at one point and got a teaching credential and that sort of thing and and 
still didn't know what I wanted to do. And then uh, it must have been probably my junior year in college where I finally met somebody else who said they wanted to be an attorney, an environmental attorney. And I had no idea what that was. I uh, didn't really know what, you know, other than knowing in general what a lawyer was, didn't really know what that in- entailed. And then I started looking at it more and more and and kind of realized or at least concluded that a, you know, a, a bachelor's degree in poli-sci and, and history, you know, I had a double major, was probably didn't, you know, it wasn't an end point. You know, it had to be something else. And I didn't, I loved academia, but it wasn't drawing me enough um, to kind of go down that route. So I kind of, I, by hook or crook, figured out that a lot of people go to law school next. And so that's, that's kind of what went into the decision was, you know, do the law school next and then opportunities will open up. I don't know what they're going to be. Might be in the government sector. That's where I kind of thought I might go. And so I kind of went to, you mentioned earlier, I went to McGeorge, uh, which is University, University of the Pacific. That's in uh, Stockton. Is that Stockton, California? The main campus is in Stockton. Yeah. Uh, the law school, though, is in Sacramento. So I figured, well, I'll go to Sacramento. I'll go to the biggest government in the country other than D.C. Um, that'll be primed um, for some kind of uh, you know work or internship or whatever in government. Uh, and then I quickly abandoned that. Uh, plan as soon as I went through about a semester and lost interest. <laughs> I, I hear you. So, but but was it hard? Was it a tough transition, or or you just kind of went with the flow? It sounds like. Did you have any? I mean, it doesn't sound like you had too many problems. It sounds like you just kind of went with the flow, and things seemed to work out. Uh, yeah, you know, and I've been asked this before, and I've thought about it a lot. You know, I got out of the army. I mean, I've told people before. I said, look, I'm in the. You know, we're in the army. But, you know, we're not wearing uniform 24 hours a day. You know, we, we get off and, you know, we try to be, you know, kind of shadows of our former selves and our evolving selves. And, uh, you know, we were all civilians at one point. So, you know, that's us, at, you know, in the evening, that's us on the weekend. And certainly, I mean, there's a lot that's layered on top, you know, from, right. from the Army, for sure. But when I got out, you know, I drove back and... You know, there's some transition, but I didn't feel like I was all of a sudden in a, in a foreign land. Um, that kind of thing. What I've told people before, people have asked, I said, I think, you know, if anything that, you know, I had to kind of shed, so to speak, was kind of my strict adherence to, you know, to to rules and that sort of thing. You know, it's like I had to soften up a little bit, I guess. Um, and not, realize that not everything goes by the book and everything is supposed to. Yeah. And I don't even know why I would think that because it's not as if everything in the military went by the book either. <laughs> but but at least you have this ideal of a, of a very strict square framework. Um, so I had to shed that a little bit. And, you know, I had a part-time job when I started college. And, you know, I, a couple months in, I almost got myself fired one time, you know, because I was just, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was I think I was complaining about somebody else because they weren't doing something, and I just I couldn't believe that they weren't following the rules. That sort of thing, and <laughs> get myself in trouble. Other than that, it, you know, it it was not that hard of a transition for me. I, you know, I I transitioned into school life, so to speak, and and I was really dedicated to just absorbing it all. You know, I was I was kind of moldable, and I I you know took it as it came, and and uh, I applied myself and focused and and did well. You know. I- you know, I like the way, Andrew, I tell you, I like the way it's the first time I've interviewed anybody that said that about lightening up. And, you know, it's true. It, it's, you know, you come out of the service um, and you have been under strict set of rules, and which aren't always followed all the time. But you do. You come out and you just have a different perspective. And you know what, man? I'm glad you said that, because if you come out. And this, for anybody listening, if you come out and you think the civilian world is going to operate like the military world, 
what you they're sadly mistaken because it isn't. That's not to say that we can't be a major influence, as we well know. But I think I like that. You know, that's almost a, a bit of advice, you know, lighten up a little bit. Yeah, and it's even, you know, I don't know if it's a natural instinct or if it's a learned behavior, but um, but I, we could benefit for sure. So yeah. I want to say I did. And it might, and, you know, maybe it was, you know, the fact that I was also, you know, I was kind of out, you know, getting, do some part-time work, and then I kind of got in college life, so to speak, and everybody there is, you know, I'm, I'm the old guy at 21, <laughs> you know. Um, and everybody else is 18 starting off, at least the folks that I'm starting off with as, as freshmen. And you're certainly around a lot of people who are pretty carefree. So, you know, it's easy for them to kind of rub off on you, I guess, in that scenario. If I didn't, if I wasn't in that kind of um, situation, I don't know, maybe I would have been a little more stilted for a little bit longer. Yeah. So tell us, tell us what you're doing now. Well, now I am, I'm a partner at a law firm here in Costa Mesa, California, which is dead center uh, in Orange County in Southern California. Um, I've been doing this sort of thing for since 2001. So I guess that's just shy of 18 years. I guess in November is when I'll, it'll be my full 18 years uh, I've been practicing. I'm a civil litigator. Uh, so I'm a civil lawyer. I don't do any criminal work, uh, that sort of thing. But um most of what I do involves businesses, and it's been the same since day one. A variety of issues, as in businesses run into a lot of different things. Um, you know, if you can imagine it, you know, business can run into it. So, you know, mostly work with kind of startup businesses to uh, to medium-sized businesses, and I love it. That's a great. lot of fun. Well, I know that fun. you're – can you think of any case or a case or two that you, um, you know, that's that's been settled that you're very proud of? In general, some years ago, I, I had my last firm that I was at. Um, we represented a lot of Southern California lifestyle brands, um, so a lot of surf skate brands, and I really liked doing a lot of work for those folks. So um, it was always it was a little bit clunky here and there, you know, because they kind of had the the bro mentality, that sort of thing from the <laughs> from the coast and all that. But um, you know, they had they had really valuable intellectual property to protect. You know, they had brands that got counterfeited a lot. Um, they had um, a lot of artwork that used to get uh, infringed upon the, the copyrights in those. Um, you know, so I, I really love being able to kind of help them secure that sort of thing. Now, I guess if you want to point to one, I had an interesting one one time. It was for Billabong, and they had this piece of artwork. Uh, it was very clever. Uh, it was it was a graphic T-shirt, and it had it was like a collage. If you looked really close, it was just a collage of a lot of you know kind of coastal or images, you know, waves and things like that. But it was arranged in such a way that if you were at a distance, it would look like a skull. And then they, so they sold that in a lot of different doors. And one of the doors they sold it at was Disneyland. And sometime later, um, a shirt came out that looked almost the same. And it was the same kind of collage. It was a Pirates of the Caribbean themed graphic. Mm. And it was the very same kind of, uh, uh, appearance, you know, it was like this kind of mosaic or collage of all these mo- small images with Jack Sparrow and all that. But uh, when you looked up, uh, you know, but it was even that right there was kind of an infringement of copyright. So it was, it was curious to kind of deal with the Disney folks in, in resolving that kind of thing because it could be right all day. But you know, it's uh, economic power has some influence or something to say about how these things get resolved. Now, one other I'll tell you about really quick, which is, I don't know if I'm necessarily proud about it, but it was just, you know, just to kind of 
share some of the lunacy that we may deal with. I mean, a lot of people think and, you know, have this view of lawyers as, you know, at least one stereotype. There are many, but one is that they're all kind of, you know, four corners and stilted and wear elbow patches and all that sort of thing. I had a case, I was probably a second or third year attorney. I was at this law firm, uh, old school law firm. I mean, it literally had a library and everything, a library and even had a librarian, you know, in the law firm. And so hmm. we got this case transferred to us, and I was doing this. I've always been doing this intellectual property work, um, so copyright and trademark stuff. I love to do trade secrets, that kind of thing. And this case got us um, moved from some other attorneys to us, and so there was a lot of things for me to read already. This case was involved two guys in North Carolina, or I'm sorry, in Northern California, both who owned porta potty companies. Okay, <laughs> and. It was the most gnarly, knockdown, drag-out fight you could ever imagine. It was just a business-to-business fight over, you know, uh, trademarks and, and images. And one guy claiming that, you know, he's had the exclusive rights to have, I don't know, call it yellow porta-potties and, and claims of, you know, vandalism, uh, you know, and all this sort of thing. And I thought, how ridiculous is this? I mean, I'm sitting in this library laughing. You know, I mean, I'm laughing because I'm reading testimony that's already been taken, that kind of thing. And, and some of the, uh, shall I call it just, you know, salt of the earth answers that some guys are given <laughs> to questions and things like that under oath. Um, it was just funny stuff. I mean, it's not all, it's very serious, but at the same, at the same time, you're looking at some of the stuff going, what, is, what are people really fighting about here? So, you know, anytime though, look, I'm here to, you know, to really help people resolve problems. That's the purpose. So sometimes the problems are nutty. I mean, they're they're nutty, but um, you know, there's a lot of satisfaction that comes out in, in helping people, you know, resolve their problems. Um, not as if I don't have enough of my own. <laughs> so I don't know what I was thinking when I decided to go down this path. No, I heard what you're but. saying. So yeah, <laughs> that's crazy, you know, and it does give you a different perspective. Let me ask you this. So what is you know? There's a couple more questions here. Um, what does freedom mean to you? You know. Yeah, I've thought about that one before, and I don't know if I ever have a great answer for it. But, you know, I, I guess I want to be simple, John. Freedom means to me is not – is really worrying or thinking very seldom about whether I can do something, <laughs> you, know? I, you know? I put this in perspective sometimes. I think about – yeah, I try to put myself in the shoes of other folks in other parts of the world thinking, you know, I, I don't even know if I can imagine what their experience is, right? Because I only have my own here. And, you know, our own is we – you know, we bitch and moan about, you know, um, policies that are coming up and this is going to take away our freedom and our liberty and that sort of thing. And I think, man, wow, I'm, we're having this discussion, but man, this isn't, this isn't even a discussion someplace else. And like, how fortunate are we all, uh, to be here? Um, because we got a whole heck of a lot of freedom and liberty and, you know, just not being impinged, right? You know, certainly we live in a world of rules and laws, so it's not exactly true, right? (laughs) We're surrounded by rules and things that tell us what we can and can't do. But, you know, from our point of reference, it's not a whole heck of a lot. I mean, most of life, I feel if I want to do something, I can do it, and I can do it unabated. And so it's, you know, I feel privileged to enjoy what I call freedom. That's great, you know, because and we and sometimes we do. Sometimes we do take things for granted. There are a lot of different perspectives, you know, perspectives, on exactly what it means, but pretty great perspective you have there. Let me ask you this. So what do you want the civilian world to know, you know, based on your experiences with the service and, you know, your own transition, what do you want them to know 
about veterans? Well, I, what I'd what I'd like folks to think, or at least to conclude, is you know, veterans aren't. And maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I am. Anybody can tell me I'm wrong here. I, we're not the other, so to speak. You know, we're not the other. We're not different. We are. You know, we're all. We were all civilians at one point. We've, you know, we're, and if you're a veteran, you've returned to the civilian world, so to speak. Um, but even I guess I even hate saying civilian world because that makes it sound like the other. But you know, veterans were all. You know, we're all alike in large part. But veterans do bring out what I'd like civilians to realize: is veterans bring some just great experiences that. Uh, most civilians only see on TV, you know, or or can't even really imagine. Um, you know, I, you know, feel really honored to have, you know, really changed my worldview. I guess at 21, uh, you know, I told you when I'd grown up, I didn't, you know, I didn't get out of state much at all, or really out of town much at all. Um, and in three years, I did so much. Um, you know, Panama to every corner of the country. I mean, I did so much in those three years. So you just you, you you just bring a lot of experiences um, um, that you just will not see from other folks, um, and you bring a lot. I think in veterans across the board, you see you see a hunger. I think. I mean, I see it from other folks I run into. You just see a hunger that you won't see from a lot of other people. You will see it from a lot of civilians as well, but you will see that. Um, I think from the vast majority of veterans, uh, and especially now. I mean, what I've seen the last um, couple of years since I've kind of really reconnected. Uh, with the veteran community, I just see I see drive like I don't see in any other sector. No, those are some great points, and I have to agree with you. I mean, most, not all, you know, I think you're right, not all, but most veterans and most people that have served in the military, I would say, have a, uh, a certain motivation that you don't generally find with the civilians. doesn't mean we're better or worse or whatnot, but, but it is something that's definitely noticeable, uh, something we talked about early on that, you know, that could be a huge benefit. You know, to anybody that's considering, uh, you know, having a veteran work for them. You know, if if, yeah. uh, if there's a young transitioning or not even a young transitioning soldier or Marine or uh, Air Force or Navy personnel out there, what kind of advice can you give to them ab- about the transition? I'd say be open. You know, I don't want to say actively try to, you know, shed, you know, everything you have. And, you know, you have to somehow, you know, shed your identity to become something else. But let things come to you, you know. Um, that's probably what I could have learned, in, you know, early on. Like I said, I almost got canned one time at my part-time job, you know, for being a little too stilted. You know, just try to, you know, just let the world come to you a little bit, you know. Experience it and be moldable and be be open to accepting influence. Do that. That's one. And two, think big. I mean, I didn't really have this kind of drilled into me until probably in the last three or four years. Is to think big. Think big. I think I was always kind of constricted by limiting beliefs um, throughout my, maybe not so much in college. Once I got in kind of actually into the working world, I just kind of, I, for many years, I always thought, gosh, you know, there's so many people around me that are just way smarter than me. And, uh, uh, you know, and I need to, I wish I wouldn't have thought that way. Somebody would have been saying, you know what, think bigger. You need to think bigger. Think big. I've really adopted that philosophy the last couple of years, and it's really paid off. Really paid off. So I say early on, Think big. Think big. It'll give you something to, to, to aim at. Definitely some good advice. You know, so I know that you're, uh, you know, you've been part of the Military Influencer Conference, and I know you've actually had some workshops there. Do you, are you planning on giving one in D.C. Uh, at the next one? 
I put in a submission for it. Um, I won't expect that it's necessarily going to get accepted. I know they get so many fantastic submissions. If I do get accepted again, I love it. I will I will give the best breakout I can. But I, there's so many people that want to do it. And, and heck, I'd love to go attend some more myself. So if I get to, great. If not, heh, I'll, I'll apply again. Yeah, that sounds great. So how can people get a hold of you, Andrew, especially somebody on the West Coast that – may have a question about trademarks or, you know, copyright infringement, you know, or startup, you know, legal stuff. How can they get a hold of you? Yeah. Um, well, my email address is pretty simple. It's A. Nelson, as in Andy Nelson, A. Nelson at FortisLaw.com. That's F-O-R-T-I-S-L-A-W. So email is always great. Uh, my number here is 949-397-2964. It's my direct line there. And then you know, as you know, the email suggests, our website's fortislaw.com. So easy to find. That's cool, man. Well, I got to tell you, I've uh, I've had it's been enjoyable to have you on the show finally, and uh, appreciate you as a person. You know, I'm looking forward to uh, if I make it up to DC, but I know we'll see each other somewhere. We're kind of running in the same circles, but you know, no, Mister Mister Andrew Nelson of Fortis uh, Law, and he's out there in Costa Mesa, California, doing some great things for people in business and protecting people's rights. Um, I appreciate you, Andrew, and uh, thank you for being on Straight Out of Combat Radio. John, I appreciate you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you having me on. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember... Freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.